Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm your host, John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Each week on the show, we try to bring you some aspect of horsemanship. It's really our journey through our life with horses. On today's show, we have Lester Buckley, who admittedly was not a great horseman. It's important for me to say I was never the student that stood out and somebody would never say, now that kid there, he can ride, or that kid there, he's got talent. That was not me. But through a lot of hard work and experience, Lester became a top-notch trainer. We were lucky to meet Lester through one of our listeners, Robin Kane, who's been, and this is really kind of a group effort, she's actually helped us set up several interviews. She's hosting a Lester Buckley Clinic in Willits, California, later in August, and we wanted to talk to Lester, find out about his life with horses, and to get some training tips from him. He's had a very long and varied life with horses. The guy's been around. Yes, he's traveled. Uh, he's he's traveled across the country. He's worked on some very huge ranches, and he's he's ridden a lot of horses and he's trained a lot of great horses. Before we get to the interview with Lester, we'll tell you the little bit that's been going on with our horses. It's been incredibly hot here in the valley. Temperatures are consistently over the 100 degree mark. Oh, 105, 107, it just gets pretty hot and sweaty out there. So we feel for the horses. And we'll try and ride them early in the morning. It's uh, usually mid 80s or 90s by uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. And when we do ride, we ride close to home. The rides are fairly easy on flat ground. We'll give them a rinse before we go and gosh, they're dry in no time. We won't do too much schooling on them, but we will uh, the, the schooling that we do will be in very short bursts. Right. We'll, we'll lope for sh- short stretches. You still want to get some, some activity and some level of exercise, but not a whole lot. And then when we bring them back, we'll rinse them off again, turn them out on a little bit of grass. Yeah, and let them kind of wander around. We have a half-acre property, and uh, they get a, about half of that to uh, kind of get under the shade trees and nibble on some grass and relax for for a little while it gets them out of the heat somewhat too right we have the two big mulberry trees and they like that shade and john will put the sprinkler on for them (laughs) yeah so uh they like to go under the water they like to run like little kids they like running through the sprinklers (laughs) we don't let them run through the sprinklers. no we don't (laughs) (laughs) and we've got a lot of great guests coming up on this show and many of them are trainers and i thought you know we get to ask them about our personal question in our interview with lester you'll hear renee ask a question about how she deals with the situation that came up with dusty but we want you to be part of the show too so if you've got a question for a trainer and it doesn't matter who the trainer is we'll track them down and find them but if you've got a particular favorite question you've always wanted to ask a particular trainer you can email us that question and your favorite trainer or we can pick one out for you if you if you'd rather but whatever you're having an issue with with your horse we want to know about it and there's two ways you can do that you can email us at john at woepodcast.com describe your horse what's going on, and if you can, a very succinct question that we can pose to a trainer. These guys are really busy, but we'll get a hold of them. We'll try and record their response, and we'll play it for you on a future show. Now, if you'd really like to help us out, you can also call in and leave a message on our message phone line. And 
and you can leave your question. Tell us about your horse there. We'll play that for the trainer, and then we'll play the trainer's response. We'll put them all together, and we'll put them on a future show. Does that make sense, Renee? Well, it does, and I think it sounds pretty fun. Good, because I usually don't make that much sense, especially <laughs> this time of day. Because anyway. Lester answered my question just great. <laughs> and, and we want you to kind of take advantage of that, too, because you're all part of this this journey through horsemanship. So if you'd like to leave a message, that number, it's a toll number, but everybody's got cell phones, and it's all part of everybody's plans, usually. Have a plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can call, that number is 661 368 Five five three zero, and we'll give you that number again at the end of the show. But if you think about it, and if you've got a favorite trainer and a favorite question, call in, leave that message, and we'll make you part of the show. And now our conversation with Lester Buckley on the Woe Podcast. Good morning. We're speaking with clinician, trainer, and breeder Lester Buckley. Good morning, Lester. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. It's a wonderful day here in Kentucky. Thank you for asking. Lester, we've been doing a little bit of background studies and found out that uh, that you've got quite an extensive history in horsemanship. Would you mind going over some of the the ways you got started with horses? Well, I was real fortunate. I kind of got bumped out of the starting gate as a kid. I had a few different homes, but the one thing they uh, all were consistent about is they had horses and cattle. And so I pretty much grew up immersed in the the cattle and horse industry of uh, north central Texas. Mm-hmm. So kind of the historical background of the Charles Goodnight and the Oliver Loving is where I grew up in Texas. And then you started working for the King Ranch? Well, you know, I didn't go there right away. I actually got introduced to the horses through my neighbor, Delwyn Birch. He had an own son of Doc Barr named Doc's Mahogany. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have own son of freckles. So he would pay me in the mornings before I went to school, he would pay me $5 a horse to come by and lope horses. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so that was in the 70s. You know, we had horses going up. And so he got me started. And he was a fine, fine man. Dylan Burns, anybody that knew him there in Graham, Texas, has high level of respect for him. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to horses. And then I went to college out in Alpine, Texas, saw Ross and got a Bachelor of Science in equine sciences, horse sciences, you know, met Ray Hunt when I was in college and, and got a little scholarship to kind of, you know, go to as many as his clinics as I could get to and the ranchers that are from the big band country of Texas and from north central Texas, they would pay for me to go and then I had excuse absences to be gone if I would come back and share it with my peers there at uh, Sol Ross, which was the tricky part. <laughs> <laughs> What were some of the more valuable lessons that you learned from Ray? Well, it was, I, it's important for me to say, I was never the student that stood out and somebody would never say, now that kid there, he can ride, or that kid there, he's got talent. That was not me. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I was just, I just can't fit in, but I wanted bad. And uh, so watching Ray, when I first saw him there at Fort Stockton, it just changed it, it, like all of us, you know, that, that saw him, it resonated with me at its deep level because I kind of needed that in my own life. Mm-hmm. And he was offering it to really kind of sink in with who I was. And and uh, I was probably a slow learner, but, you know, I studied him as I could and, and rode a lot of horses and got out of college and had an opportunity to work with a really good uh trainer after that, but, but Ray's uh, things that probably changed my thinking were uh, 
you know, looking for the slightest try, rewarding the slightest try, you know, offering him a, you know, do as little as possible, you know, but as much as necessary. And he, you know, his, his, his wisdom and Tom and Bill's wisdom is so deep now. It's almost cliche, but it's not cliche. It's just profound. So we don't want to lose that, you know, as the generation come down. And how different was that from the horsemanship that, that you had been exposed to up until that time? Well, it was pretty different. Uh, my neighbor, not Delwyn Burtz, he was a really good horseman, but my immediate neighbor that we shared the fence with was a rodeo stock contractor. Mm-hmm. And the way that we would start our colts, of course, I was junior high in high school, is, uh, you know, you'd rope them and uh, get them isolated and then sneak in there and tie up that back leg and blindfold them. Of course, I'm a child, you know, junior high in high school. Right. And uh, you'd get your saddle on them and maybe even had to roll them into a saddle. And, of course, this is what I saw my generation before me doing. Right. And they would, you know, say, well, Lester, get him by the cheek, you know, the bridle there and step up and we'll turn him loose. And so that's what I was introduced to in the late 60s, early 70s, well, yeah. mainly early 70s. You know, that was kind of the other side of the coin, you know, taking their flight instincts and conquering it. Right. And, uh, you know, meeting Ray. Fortunately, I met Ray before all that other stuff took a hold. <laughs> <laughs> or got you, you know, and uh, So, well, I wasn't very good at that other way. And, and so fortunately, before I had an opportunity to uh, do it very long, I met Ray. And, and and so that was wonderful. I met Ray. And so that pretty much just started me off down the right road on the right track. And you know, as I could afford, I'd go to the Colt Starting Clinics and the Horsemanship Clinics and rode a lot of horses, and then that's what helped me probably much as anything. Is uh, kind of having that regular coaching and challenging ideas, and then having the opportunity to uh, just ride a lot of different horses and kind of learn by you know the trial and experience of of numbers. Made a lot of mistakes, but learned a lot. And Were you interested in Colt Starting per se, or or the or finishing the horse? Well, at that time, uh, high school and college, it was mainly cold starting. I mean, that's that's all I did. That's what uh, young guys do. <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. And, of course, you know, we, we don't have the finesse, you know, to finish horses at right. that time. Now, I got to ride some really nice finished horses there at my neighbors at Dillon Birch's because he would have finished horses that were coming from Buster Welch and Matlock Rose. Right. So they would come to his farm for breeding. Well, those are the ones he would pay me. And, you know, in retrospect, I don't think he needed those horses ridden, but I I think he was wise enough to know it was a great opportunity for me to ride horses behind Buster Welch and Matlock Rose and these guys and know what they felt like. So that was invaluable, too. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but boy, I do now. And just out of curiosity, what would one of those sessions be like? So you're going to, he tells you to lope some horses do you just do circles or um, are they in a bridle at that point? No, he would just say, here's a pan of mares over here. There's five or six mares in that pan over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to keep them fit would be what he would say. I want to keep these mares fit while they're in. And just uh, why don't you ride those those three or four or five, how many mares ever you can get to this morning. How about you just, you know, pull those out and then, you know, you can go over here behind the bar and there's a pretty good size uh, about a, a 200 foot round thing, huge. And, uh, just, just, you know, walk, trot and lope them for me and make sure they stay fit. Of course, he knew I was going to stop, turn them around and go over and, and I was high school. 
but he wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be there to supervise. And so he probably watched me from up on the house, I'm assuming. (laughs) But, uh, but, you know, he never came down and corrected me or said, you might think about this or you might think about that, because these were really nice horses. This would be 74, 75, 76, 78. Yes. And then I graduated high school in 79 and went out to Sol Ross after that. This was a quarter horse facility? Yes, ma'am. It was a it was a big breeding facility, what it was. Right. You know, during the late 70s, the Sons of Doc Bars and the Sons of Freckles, you know, were pretty big in the cutting horse business. Oh, big time, yeah. And his sire, Doc's Mahogany, had just sired the NCHA Futurity winner, American Miss Royal Mahogany. So we were getting lots of mares. What a great experience. It was wonderful. It was a great foundation because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I, but that, he was that way. You know, he passed in a plane crash not too long ago. And a lot of us were together, and we got to comparing stories. And turned out he had helped a lot of us in different areas of our life, kind of passively through the back door. He he thought we all thought he was giving us work. Turned out in you know different areas of our life, some of them were policemen, some of them were you know people from his church, and we were all started sharing stories. And it's like, well, you know, he helped me out one time, and come to think of it, I don't think he really needed that help. <laughs> he was doing it more for me. So, yeah, Delwyn Birch was kind of a great. Starting point in life for me, and of course Ray challenged me with the, the whole different way of thinking about you know the horse from the horse's point of view, which really changed things for me. It changed everything from then on, and, and, it, and it kind of matched who I was, and you because know, I was a pretty thin-skinned, you know, pretty sensitive kid. I'd lost my mom and dad oh, prior sorry. to that, so so I was looking for something that made sense, and that made sense. That Owen's that thing made sense for me, and Ray's approach really made sense for me. So I kind of hooked up to that pretty quick. And then you've got a really great experience that uh, all of us would like to do is to travel to Hawaii to train <laughs> horses. Oh, <laughs> you know, that was kind of funny. You know, after I got out of college, I got a, an apprentice training job. I, I got the assistant training job with Willie Richardson, who was at the top of his game. Wonderful man. I worked for him for seven years. And only one day did he really kind of have to take me to the mat and correct me. And I had got all the water pipes right, uh, wrapped for a big storm. And then he and I carried water together all day for the horses. But seven years I worked for him, and he was wonderful, absolutely wonderful to work for. And he had had a history of working for June Mitchell and a lot of those old legendary cowboys out at Helen Grove's place. And he had grown up on the racetrack and yeah, I worked for him for seven years, and finally he gave me a letter that I still have, and he said, "You no longer need to work for me. I have nothing left to teach you. I encourage you to go you to go create your own life." And it was after that that I went to the King Ranch. Uh, so by then, you know, I'd had some colts out there, and even some finished horses that had won the Super Stakes and and done real well. And so then that led to the King Ranch, and then from the King Ranch. Most of the big ranches at that time were not using their employees. They were hiring outside professionals, you know, colt starters. Right. And then the Parker Ranch had called the King Ranch, and then the King Ranch, uh, you know, had had uh, helped put us together. Me and a buddy of mine, Jimmy Scuddy, we went through all college together. He was a grad student while I was undergrad. So he and I buddied up, and we went to the Ray Hunt Tunks together and the Horsemanship Tunks together. We went to the King Ranch together. You know, we did the park ranch together, so we were kind of, you know, we were, you know, bosom buddies, you might mm-hmm. say. And so, uh, 
But the Park Ranch, it was a novel idea for them because they had never had anybody do it but other than just their own in-house paniolos. Right. So it was a pioneering deal out there to go from the King Ranch where it was normal to have seasonal you know, cult starters to come into the Park Ranch where they're like, no, we always do it the same way and this is the way we do it. And so change was a little bit tough out there. Was that natural horsemanship approach to starting the cults pretty new to the Hawaiian Ranch? Yes. Yeah, that would be an understatement. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Yes. They still did the old tie-up-the-leg thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. When we got there, it was uh, 88, 89. When when Jimmy and I got there, uh, it was bring them in. And they had a lot of horses. You know, we had 500 head horses there. We probably had 360 just work horses. Uh, back then it was a quarter million acres, 31, 32,000 mother cows, and all the work was done horseback. So it was a real uh, working cattle ranch, and all the horses were used for work. They weren't show horses. But it was uh, bring them into the round pen, rope them, mm-hmm. and uh, get them to stand in still, not necessarily in, in a slow method, but and this is what I saw when I showed up, and rope them. You know, get them stopped and get in there and, and, you know, get a rope around their shoulders and and, uh, pull the back leg up and do a blindfold and, and, you know, pull a hind leg up and blindfold them with a panemaka and and, uh, get your saddle on them. And they did things a little bit different than we did. They might tie the strips together underneath the belly and uh, and put a young guy up there and untie him and raise the blindfold. There they go. You know, so. The, the the approach that, that, that Jimmy and I had learned from riding with Ray and, and that natural horsemanship approach was definitely a novel concept for them. Because, uh, Ray had been there, but they just hadn't embraced it. So right. it wasn't unheard of. It just wasn't what they had chose to do. And on a ranch like that, are they, are they breeding those horses for specific stock? I mean, are they able to control the studs and the mares in, in a way to to get better horses every year? Well, I'd like to say eventually we did change that, and we got that, yes, sir, okay. uh, I would say, because eventually I took over the breeding program. I didn't take it over. They hired me as the ranch horse foreman, mm-hmm. and by then I knew the offspring really well because I'd been riding the colts out of this mare for five years and that mare for five years and this stallion for five years, and so I knew what nicks were working and which ones weren't. Right. Prior to that, you know, the, everything came through the breaking pans, and if one was a little bit, you know, kind of kind of rough to break, well, you know, maybe that's not ride that one. You know, we can use that one for a brood horse, you know, and we'll keep these good riding horses and then go to the working band. And But as the years advanced uh, and we kind of got to know the broodmares and the stallions, my immediate boss brought in a nice ton of dash for cash, and then I was able to bring in a nice Zampar bar stud. Oh, yeah. And uh, we had a nice foundation broodmare band, went back to four different sons of three bars. And they were, so there was a, a, an appendix type of a horse that mm-hmm. we had. Uh, they weren't necessarily the kind of uh, arena horse that I had been used to in a Texas cutting horse pen. You know, the, most of them were 15-2. Uh, long strided, good withered, uh, covered a lot of country. Horse trailers didn't come in there till uh, you know later on, like in the 80s. Uh, before then, you know, you'd saddle up at wherever your division headquarters were, and you would ride to the cattle. Right. And uh, the remount program did a big influence there. Obviously, before I was there, uh, there was a big influx of uh, 
military remount stallions that instead of having one central station, they put them out on the different ranches where the military approved of their broodmares, and the park ranch is one of those. Wow. wow. Very interesting. What's the life of a, uh, the working life of a horse that's out on a ranch that big, having to ride everywhere? Do you, do you work you know, for a pretty five... good, John. Is it? <laughs> it? It's pretty good, you know, because none of those horses lived in stall. Right. Um, I wouldn't start them under the saddle till the very end of the fall, almost winter of their two-year-old year. So they were almost three before we'd ever ride them. And even then, we'd only ride them three or four weeks. And then we'd kick them out up high in the country, in the high country, like in a 2,000-acre paddock. And they'd mature through the winter. And then when we'd come back in the spring, we'd put another 30 days on them as a three-year-old. And each cowboy or paniolo would get a young horse. And if they had 10 horses in their string, they might have two Pona E horses, which are personal horses. Uh-huh. And then these 10 other horses. And what they do is these horses, after we had 60 days on them, they'd ride them lightly, maybe like Mondays and Fridays, checking water trawls and putting out mineral and then maybe ride and drag on them. While, the, while on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays was actually roping and dragging cattle and sorting. Uh, they'd use their more seasoned horses, their mature horses. You know, those young horses got to come along kind of nice and slow. And, and my favorite part of that time back then, and it was, you know, similar to the big ranches, the King Ranch uh, as well, is during the summers, the children of the, whether it's uh, the, uh, the, the cowboys down in South Texas or the Paniolos out in Hawaii, the children would come out and they would ride the older horses, you know, the 14, 15, 15, right. 17 year old horses because by then the horses were seasoned ranch horses well the kids would come out there well that's your future employees and so the kids would learn where the gates were and learn kind of how to shape the cattle and you know they obviously they did it different in some ranches than they did it in other ranches but regardless uh the kids got to work alongside their, their parents you know for the most part their dads and uh, so those ranch horses, they would start slow, kind of peak during their prime years. You know, they might use one to, you know, rope and drag six or eight calves and then, you know, maybe change to another one, change to another one, change to another one, use the young horses for, you know, two or three years doing light duty. And then at 18, we'd re- we would retire them. So the ranch manager and myself, we would bring all the horses in on their 18th year and we'd assess them and just you know decide on a value and then we would offer them first to the paniolo that had them and uh, they weren't expensive horses by any means but if they were attached to that horse they could they could buy them and it could be theirs for keeps and if they didn't then there were a lot of trail ride outfits there in hawaii that would love to have an old seasoned you know uh, ranch horse (laughs) So that was kind of the life, but they lived out in bands. You know, we had seven divisions there on the Big Island, one horse division, which was the division I was in, and then six different cattle divisions. And so the horses in the north part would all live up there, and and the the central part, the Mauna Kea, the Makahala area would all live there, and then the Puhui division, they would have their band of horses. So it was pretty natural, to tell you the truth. And, of course, they had grass, (laughs) you know, 12. Yeah, it was great. It It was for a horse back then, uh, it wasn't bad, and uh, but it wasn't easy either because once they got in their prime and they had to work, boy, they had to work. They were so. working, huh? And then how did you yes, come into coming back to the States and working, uh, developing your clinician trainer business? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked because I wouldn't have thought about it. 
when I was in Hawaii, uh, Dr. Robert Miller, which we all know is kind of, you know, one of the guys that ended up taking it public, obviously Ray Hunt took it public from what he learned, but, but Dr. Miller quit his veterinary practice to promote it. And, uh, so Dr. Miller was doing a clinic over in Maui, over at Ulapalakua Ranch, and a mutual friend of ours said, well, why don't you come to the Big Island and do a clinic? And we have a young guy here on Parker Ranch. You've never met him, but you guys would probably do fine. We'll just put you together one weekend and have a clinic. And he's like, okay. And so uh, Dr. Miller and I did a clinic together, and it was great. We loved it. We've been friends for over 20 years. Wow. We just had him on the show about a month ago. <laughs> right? Okay. <Yeah. laughs> well, we've been doing we've been doing clinics almost every year since then. Wow. Well, he was getting ready to travel when we talked to him. Yeah, he was just getting ready <laughs> yeah. to travel. Yeah, I still see him two or three times a year. Uh, love him, and uh, you know he's you know, got some wonderful, you know, wonderful, wonderful memories with him. He's helped. Obviously, he helped me in the beginning, kind of get my name out as a clinician, and and he's helped me in learning how to teach. When I met him, I kind of got to showing cutting horses on the side there in Hawaii, and then uh, got a really good horse, a son of Carmel Farkles, out of a daughter of Philanek, and and uh, just I kind of had to know that I could compete with the, you know, the legends in my mind back in right. Texas. And so I left the park ranch after about seven years and went back to Texas with this horse. And, uh, then Dr. Miller and I kind of kept in touch during all those years. And then I continued training cutting horses for about another six or seven years and showing them. And that's all I did. I mean, I eat, of course I was single, so I could do that, but I mean, I ate and breathed and slept. And I mean, that's seven days a week and, and basically, you're showing about 50 weekends out of the year, seem like, and wow. and uh, and so and I did, and and I competed with the guys that were my legends, and sometimes I beat them, most of the time they beat me, but <laughs> I saw that lifestyle for what it was for, and experienced it, and and realized it wasn't, you know, uh, the longevity of that career wasn't there for me. Right. Uh, you know, I did want a family, and I'm. I love my horses and I want to be nice to my horses. And, uh, uh, so during my last year of showing cutting horses, I, I, uh, there, Will Rogers, they were having a, a dressage training clinic over in the next hall over. And one of the ladies said, Hey, Buckley, you ought to come next door. There's this guy from Germany. You would like him because they knew I was interested in English writing, but I didn't know anybody in that world. Mm-hmm. And I went next door and sure enough, there was this guy riding and it was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. I got to asking questions every day and moving down to the front row. And by the end of a week, you know, I consumed all of his break time. And, and uh, <laughs> he said, well, why don't you come to Germany and ride? And I'm like, well, I'm a cowboy. And they're like, oh, it's okay. You know horses. You'll be fine. And I'm like, really? I can come? And I didn't have any idea who I was talking to. And, well, it turns out he's the head rider in Germany for licensing all the trainers. Oh, wow. uh, so he was the head of the riding school in Vorndorf. And he invited me to come. So that was kind of being in the right place at the right time. And it was kind of the first year that they opened up their schooling, their German writing system to non-Germans. There was kind of a little pilot program where they said, we'll give this a shot. We'll see if the the non-Europeans, you know, the Americans or whoever from anywhere in the world want to come and they want to learn our system. And so I was part of that first wave, very first class, actually. When you were sitting watching that clinic and you said you would ask him questions on the break, do you remember some of those questions that you were, things that you wondered about? Sure. You know, I was asking him a lot about 
you know, of course, the training scale is a big thing for the German riders or actually all classical dressage riders. So I'd ask him about the training scale and I would ask him about throughness, you know, and ask him about his German words, you know, the Losgelassenheit, you know, tell me about the mental and physical suppleness, you know, tell me about the self-carriage on contact, you know, obviously a totally different kind of contact than we had with the cutting horses. And, uh, right. you know, tell me about the way of moving and the recycling of the energy and different things like that. And your and your methodology and, and you know your foundation and, and how do you get these horses to Grand Prix and how long does it take and when do you start them and the answers were just like things that really resonated with me like well we don't start them under saddle till they're four years old and I'm like oh whoa that's such good news to me and, you know, <laughs> oh you and Doctor Miller you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> And they said we bring them along really slow and they shouldn't, you know, be jumping, you know, very high at a young age. And and, uh, we'd like to see them peaking, you know, between, you know, maybe eight and 18. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I've seen that. I've seen those horses at the Olympics, you know, and they're 14, 15, 16, and they're excelling and peaking. And so that really resonated with me as far as a philosophy of, of breeding horses and training horses and living with horses. And, uh, but the natural horsemanship really hadn't worked its way into that world uh, deeply. I mean, there was fringes, you know, where different people had a different influence. So it was a good opportunity for me to take that to them while they brought me up through their classical training system. And, you know, the Germans, they have a test for everything. So. <laughs> and then do the two systems actually blend together? Well... Um, the best way I can answer that, John, is to say that uh, good horsemanship is good horsemanship. Now, it sure might be different horsemanship, but good horsemanship is good horsemanship. And so what you'll find, what, what I found personally was, is there was a little bit, you know, what I did is I try to be pretty respectful of other cultures. And I had lived in a minority in a lot of different places already. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Germany, I didn't tell anybody I knew anything about horses. I just kind of kept my mouth closed, which is hard to believe. I know that, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I just I just stayed real quiet and did what they tell me and rode, and I did all right and passed. And then we and but then in the evenings, since I had my own horses there, well, eventually we developed some horses there. And the first year, mm-hmm. I had my own riding horse. That I had purchased there in Germany, and so I could play with him, quote, on my own terms after school. <laughs> so I might blur some of their rules a little bit, doing some of the natural horsemanship things. And uh, but some of the old masters would come by and they're like, "What are you doing? This is not our program." And I'm like, "Well, I'm working on this or that, and I'm kind of playing with it." And then they would be like, uh, you know, we've got a horse that has a problem with that over in the barn. Would you mind after school tomorrow if we kind of did a little bit of that with him? And so then we kind of developed, I was still a student of the German writing system, but then their, their writing masters, and I think it's this way probably in all disciplines, but the writing masters, they recognize that, hey, here's somebody who's paid their dues and he's doing something that's not really our program, but it really is helping that horse there, this kind of got a problem that allowed me a real polite but genuine way to you know share some of the things that you know that we would know from the natural horsemanship world with the classical riders and so then the respect for me came up from them and obviously i already had a high level of respect for them so they can blend people that are deep true horsemen because they know for you to be good 
that you've paid your dues somewhere. It might not be where they paid their dues. They recognize that and they want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, we do like to talk a little bit about actual horsemanship techniques for our listeners, too. And you're doing a couple of clinics in California in August. And then one of them is one of the places I'd really love to see sometime, the V6 Ranch. When you do these clinics, what are you helping people with? What's some of the more difficult challenges people have with their horses? You know, they're all unique as far as the individual challenges, but the core and the and the base always kind of seems to be the same, which is, you know, the people have uh, a different expectations necessarily than maybe what their horse has, but they're kind of thinking of the horse more from the person's point of view. Uh, you know, I'd like my horse to do X, Y, and Z. And so what I try to do is come in and kind of share, you know, the insights that I have from your horse's point of view, not that I'm a horse, but I've certainly tried to spend my whole life learning how they think mm-hmm. and feel and behave and react. And so what I try to do is come in and assess their relationship with their horse early on and then share some just fundamental principles that are true to horses and how they're wired and how they're designed and what means things to them. And then kind of get the people to being you know, if we were in the human world, we would say others centered, right? That's what makes a great business. Well, riding horses, I would get people to be horse centered instead of what the horse can do for you. What can you do for your horse and how can you help understand him and how can you kind of get through his mind to his feet and through his emotions to his speed and to his transitions. And then ultimately the outcome of that is, Hey, look, you're starting to actually develop a bond, a harmony with your horse. You know, I go in and I'll listen to the horse and watch the horse and, you know, try to assess what the horse is experiencing, feeling in lieu of their relationship with their rider. And then try to find a kind of a middle ground and, and like I say, share those insights of what your horse is feeling or their balance is they're not balanced and here's how you're affecting their balance and here's how that affects their peace and here's why they're not peaceful. And let's try these different things with your body and these exercises. And sometimes the exercise itself can be a great great training tool because they can feel the horse's balance change. And once they start feeling, oh, I did, I felt his balance change. And look how better he's moving. He's Now he's quit rushing. And so, but but the underpinning of that is getting people to be centered on their, trying to see life out of their horse's eyes and their horse's Mm -hmm. sense of balance and their horse's sense of, you know, meaning, and then ride them and live with them and interact with them in that way. And then, then obviously the results uh, are different than they are rather than we go in when we say, okay, I'm going to train this horse through X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to make him do this. Well, right. that's just not my approach. Is it fair to say that some of those problems come from horse owners who, you know, they have jobs and families and work, and so when they get out to their horse, they want to go through things perhaps more quickly than the horse is ready for them and they they tend to rush or they tend to not prepare the horse properly yes sir i would agree with that and i wouldn't say it's certainly limited to uh, people who, who work and have jobs i'd say it applies to, to those <laughs> of us who train for a living also <laughs> i mean i'll certainly own up to that one uh, yeah, so sure yes uh, i've got my hand up over here in kentucky <laughs> and it, uh, and it is, it's, it's a real challenge, but, but if, but we miss part of the beauty of having horses 
if we start thinking of it as a business. Right. Uh, now, it is a business, obviously, and it's how I provide for my family. But for if we can kind of change our mind, here's my favorite sentence. From my mind, when I come out here to the barn and I'm going to work horses, or I go to a clinic, and, and Tom Dorrance said this, and he said, well, most people tend to get in, and I might not have it exactly right, but the essence that I have in my mind is most people tend to get in trouble when they quit riding their horse and start training their horse. Oh. Most people tend to get in trouble when they quit riding and start training. And so I try to remind myself of that every day. And, and like I say, that might not be exactly how he said it. I knew Bill a little bit, but I didn't get to visit with Tom other than just on the phone. But the essence of that, what that hit home for me was, we'll just go ride your horse and don't worry about picking all his faults apart. You know, just see if you can, you know, have a good relationship with him, improve his mm -hmm. good stuff. Yeah, you spend a little bit of time improving his stuff where he needs to struggle a little bit. But just go ride him and kind of, and what it does is it takes that agenda approach off the table. And I got to get this done by this time. And I've only got so much time and I'm in a hurry. And it's on my agenda seat that it's self, 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 me, me, me. Whereas if we go out there and, and even if we read some of these old classical books, I mean, I remember there was this one old classical German writer. He was, he was brilliant. And he had this one horse that was so troubled and, and of course, obviously this is a long time ago and he would go out and he would mount his horse and then have one of his assistants bring him the paper. He would smoke a cigar and read the paper, standing still. And then when the cigar <laughs> was gone, he'd get off, unsettle his horse, and put him up. <laughs> but for that, you know, but for that horse, that horse needed a window of time to where he knew he wasn't going to be in trouble. And then eventually he was able to take that horse on to Grand Prix. Great. How mm. great. Is there one sort of simple exercise that, we can do that would improve our communication skills with our horse? Um, just one. Wow, what a big question. Oh, just one. A sponge, huh? um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm thinking <laughs> of uh, what's the movie City Slickers when when uh, uh, the old cowboy said, There's one thing. Oh, yeah. Remember? <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's one thing. And he's like, What's the one thing? What's I don't think one? he's going to tell me the one thing. <laughs> so I'm thinking that's what I see in my mind. Oh, there's only one. I was trying to take it easy on you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a specific issue with uh, gelding. He's 20 years old, and I think he worked pretty hard. I got him when he was nine, and he hates to lope circles. He just really resists it, and we can lope all day in a straight line. Should I just assume mm -hmm. that it hurts and that he doesn't want to do it because it hurts? Or I've kind of struggled with this back and forth. Should I make him lope circles? <laughs> Okay. Now we got a great question on okay. the table. I love it. Okay. Thank you very much. Here's what, here's, here's where I would come to the table on that. Okay. I would say, well, you know what? Maybe he's bored to tears of doing circles and maybe that first circle didn't feel too bad. And then he got a little achy and he got a little, you know, wanting to, you know, be refreshed. But we said, no, you got to do another one. He's like, okay. Then he starts to get a little fatigued. You know, and then the fatigue, whether it's in a person or a horse, starts to manifest itself its ways, you know, manifest its ways and other ways. And, and so for me, with that particular horse in that particular scenario, and then apply this across the board to all of our riding, is, okay, his, you know, if he's loping a circle to the left, he's mainly bent to the left. That splenous muscle of the left side of the neck is, you know, contracted. The rib cage, you know, is compressed. The right side is stretching. The rib cage is over to the right. The left hand is loaded. You got all these things. 
do it for a little while and then he's you know then after a while it becomes like okay i'm giving you the best i got and it's not working <laughs> and so then they start getting evasive to me maybe a better approach a guarantee a better approach for me would be to go to the trail ride and go on the trail and see if i could do lesser movements to change his balance so maybe i go around the tree to the right and that allows me to move his rib cage over to the left and now it'll allows me to have the same bend I would have had on that 15 or 20 meter circle to the right. And I maintain it and I get a really nice feel. And then I let him release into straight line. Mm -hmm. And then we go along together in a straight line together. And then I see another, maybe there's a tree or a bush, like at the King Ranch, we had lots of big mesquite trees, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe I'll do a circle around it instead of just doing a rote circle in the arena. Maybe I do a big circle around this, you know, sagebrush Mm -hmm. out in the desert or around this mesquite tree. And it allows him a reason to do a really nice circle. And I do a nice one and then I head off in a straight line and release him into balance again. And then I can actually start to doing transitions. I can, you know, find another tree to go around or a bush, or if I don't have that, I can even put a slicker, a couple of slickers on the ground and or ride on the outside of a round pen or anything that would give him a reason for doing a circle mm. and going around something and keeping life interesting and getting his ears up, you know, where we're going, what are we doing? This mm-hmm. is kind of interesting together. And then once the, once you can feel their balance changing from the right to center, to left, back to the center, back to the right, back to the center. Now you realize you have control of his balance. There's nothing, you know, we're not nagging him. We're working right. with him. We're developing a relationship then we can start to bring our life up and, and do our transitions. We can bring our life up, get a nice jog, maybe take it all the way up into a trot, maybe an extended trot, maybe, you know, relax, bring our life back down into a, you know, a slow jog, maybe right down into a walk, maybe into a mosey, bring it up into a real <laughs> quick march. See, I mean, those yeah, things are real good. intriguing for a horse. Yeah. But, but if, and if all you have is an arena, that's okay too. But I would, uh, during my warm-up, I'd probably have a longer warm-up maybe than the average person, maybe 15 minutes. And I might just do like three loop serpentines, you know, mm-hmm. all the way down and all the way back. Well, that's way better to me for warming a horse up than just circles. Because right. now I've got him bent to the left, now he's straight. Now he's bent to the right, now he's straight. Now he's bent to the left, now he's straight. See, so we're not asking him to hold any position for any chronic amount of time. And it, and it becomes interactive, and they get to change the balance, and they get to relax those muscles that were tight, and now tighten those muscles that were relaxed. Mm-hmm. So that's a great question, and that's, that yeah. would kind of be my approach. And that's a terrific answer, too. Yeah. And how long do you warm a horse up for? Depends on the breed. Depends on the individual. Yes, sir. We have quarter horses. Yep. Some of the <laughs> well, quarter horses, you know, and then you got two different kind of quarter horses. You know, you've got your, yes, uh, <laughs> you know, you got your long, flat, muscled kind of quarter horses, and that would be you've mine. Got your, you know, short, bunchier kind of, you know, more of a, and that's mine. You know, that arena like to do the circles. <laughs> yeah, kind of quarter horses. You know, so you know, if I've got a lazy horse. You know, I might get his, you know, I'll, for me, it's real important that whatever speed they offer me to start with, that's the speed we go. So if I'm going for a walk with my wife, Mary, in the morning and she's kind of pokey, that's the speed we go. Or maybe she's <laughs> considered to me and if I'm pokey, usually that's the way it is to tell you the truth because I'm, I'm, I'm stiff and she's flexible in the morning. So, but if we go, she'll go my speed. And then later up, later on, when I'm warmed up, then we can walk the same speed. But what we've done is from the get-go, we kind of get harmonious, the same speed first thing in the morning. So when I get on thoroughbred quarter horse, 
Arabian, you know, warm blood doesn't matter. I look for the default speed that they want to go. And of course, obviously it's got to be a safe speed, but some gate within a walk that they like, and I go that speed with the life in my body. And the hotter the horse, usually the longer the walk is. So like an Arabian or a very forward warm blood, the walk will be longer than it would be with Mr. Stoic quarter horse or, <laughs> you know, some of these horses that are just real stoic. I might mosey with them for a little while and then I'll bring the life up and I'll say, okay, now I've been with you. So, you know, my thinking in the beginning is get with them, get with your horse, whatever they offer, just get with them. And so then they're like, Hey, I like this. This is, you know, I like this. We're in this together, aren't we? Yeah. This is okay. And then change your life a little bit and give them a little bit of a window to look for you. It's like, Hey, they're like, Hey, where'd you go? I thought we were in this together. Where did you go? Oh, there you are. You're a little bit faster than me and let them find you. And then now you're in harmony again. Right. Right. You know, and then maybe you can drop your life down, breathe out a little bit, soften your core muscles, you know, put a little bit of swing in your lower back and there's your mosey again. Then you sit up a little bit straighter and put a little life in your body and you come up and next thing you know, your horse is marching right along, almost trying, but he's still in a walk. And um, with the, yeah, with the Arabians and the warm bloods, it's imperative for their mind, you know, that they kind of have a a longer than what, longer than, than that kind of warm up because they have a lot of heat. You know, the chicaners would, you know, normally fall. I mean, you can't pigeonhole any particular breed. We could, but you'd be wrong in my opinion. But you know, they all they all have their uh, strengths. But I find that you normally the hotter the horses, the quieter and calmer the warm up and cool down is important to their overall lifetime well being, physical and mental. Yeah. Well, cool. This has been uh, great fun, Lester. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to to join us and give us some horsemanship tips. If people want to find out more about your clinics, training, and breeding programs, where can we send them? Well, we have a website, uh, and it's buckleyranchandsporthorses.com, and that normally is uh, pretty current. I don't do that myself, so I'm more than happy to give people my phone number, and they're just happy to call. We're pretty simple people here, so (laughs) people can just call me on my cell phone. And uh, say, hey, what do you got going on? And I'm like, well, I'm happy to share. <laughs> we have a clinic, and like we have a clinic coming up in Willits, California, and then we have another clinic coming up in Davis, California, and then we got the V6 Ranch in the fall, and and uh, normally I'm out there at Sheila Varian's once or twice a year, you know, working with her horses, and so we're out there quite a bit. And but uh, people are more than happy to just call me on my phone or uh, go to Buckley Ranch and sporthorses.com and uh, see what's going on. And and I enjoy helping people with horses. And there's no horse, uh, no matter how humble or how fancy, you know, that doesn't deserve uh, the best option possible to kind of, you know, develop a harmony and develop a bond with, you know, the people that work with them, whether it's a trainer or a weekend rider, does not matter to me. Sounds great. That's a great philosophy. And you can just hear it in your voice that you're you're out there – trying to make a better deal for the horse and, and yes, sir. the people too. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time to call. It's an exciting day here. I mean, I get to visit with you guys and I get my whole year's worth supply all on the same day. So it's a win win situation. <laughs> How many stacks of hay is that for you? Or is it by the truck? Oh, it's, for you? A, it's, a, 
it's it, what it is. It's the entire top of a, of an old dairy barn. We've got an old dairy here from the 1800s, and the underneath is where we park our trailers and trucks and farming equipment and tractors. And the upstairs is one of those old historic lofts. Mm-hmm. You know, that have the big claws that used to reach down and get the loose hay. Uh-huh. And we just, we just, we just put it up there. We put about all of our hay for the whole year upstairs and it stays nice and dry up there and we bring it down, you know, we bring down by a week's supply at a time. So Perfect. it's a, it's a wonder there's, well, it's one of the best feelings in the world to have the top of your barn filled with hay. Thank you both. You've both been wonderful people to visit with and, Ultimately, I think you guys want what I do, too, is we really want to make a better life for horses, right? And the people that is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And so thank you guys for serving and doing what y'all do. Thanks, Lester. <laughs> thank you, Lester. Hey, Renee, you're getting the uh, hang of this interviewing stuff. Thank you. <laughs> I talk really good. It's just the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all different when you have a microphone in front of your mouth, that's yes. for sure. Well, we want to thank Lester for taking the time out of his busy day. We were lucky to catch uh, Lester while he was waiting for that big pile of hay to fill <laughs> yeah. up his barn. It sounds like a great barn. I'd like to see that barn. Yes. So I'll have all Lester's information, his phone number, which is essentially how you get a hold of him, in the show notes. And uh, also his website if you want to visit him. And then I'll also have the flyer to some of the clinics that he's going to be doing in California and uh, links to the V6 Ranch where he's going to be in the fall. Remember, if you want to participate in the show, we'd love to have you be a part of it, share your horsemanship journey. If you have a question for a trainer and or a problem with your horse, you can either email me at john at woepodcast.com or leave it on our message line. That's 661-368-5530. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And if you subscribe to the podcast using either iTunes, uh, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or Google Play, you'll get the episodes as soon as they come out. And if you'd like any of the back episodes, those will be available at Google Play and iTunes. And of course, you can find everything at woepodcast.com. And there's even a link to our YouTube channel where you can see videos of the things that we've done with our horse and experienced over the years. We really appreciate all you've done to support the show and help make it grow over the years. If you'd like to help with the expenses involved with bandwidth and production of the show, you can do that quite easily by following the Patreon button at wopodcast.com. It's really simple. You can you can contribute as little as a dollar a month, or there's levels if you'd like to contribute more. We really appreciate your support. Our latest supporter was Bobby Chastain, and we really appreciate that this is just kind of getting underway, but we really appreciate all the stuff that you guys do to help grow the show. So thanks again for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and riding buddies. And until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.